You can turn in your Bible to Mark 12 again, just as a reminder of where we've been. It's now the last week of January, and Lord willing, it's the last last, uh, sermon that we'll have in this text. Uh, We've been camping out in Mark 12, verses 28 to 34 for now three weeks because we felt that it was important enough for us to spend time reflecting on the greatest commandment. That scribe, if you remember, came to Jesus and he asked about the most important commandment and Jesus responded in verses 30 and 31. He said, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind, and with all your strength. And the second is this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. And so we've thought, because this is urgent, because this is a priority, uh, this is a command that summarizes so much of the Old Testament that we got to really reflect on what this means. And so we talked last week, last couple weeks, about loving God, uh, the, the priority that, uh, that is in our lives, that we ought to love God. And then we talked about how to cultivate in our hearts a love for God. That was last week. But we thought that to, to stop there and not spend time reflecting on the second that Jesus tacks on would be to miss something Jesus is getting at. Because he says, even though the scribe only asked for one command, he adds another, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Now, let me tell you, this has been a week of preparation that was difficult to prepare. And the reason it was difficult to prepare is not because it was difficult to understand. There are some texts that you get to and you're, you're, you have a hard time understanding it. Okay, what does he mean by this? What is the authorial intent? I'm not quite sure. It's a little tricky. This is not this kind of text. That's not what happened in here. This is not hard to understand. It's actually very simple. It's just actually very hard to obey. This is very hard to apply. And as I've meditated on the command, particularly the second one, that you should love your neighbor as yourself, let me be completely honest, I have had to repent. I have had to ask God to help me change. I have had to confess areas of weakness in my own life. I've had to ask for grace to change. And as I've been praying through these truths here, Philippians 1.9 has come to mind, which says, it's Paul praying for the Philippian church. He says, it's my prayer that your love may abound more and more. That's what he's praying for. I found myself praying that for my own heart, that I would be abounding in love more and more. And that is, church, what I've been praying for you. That you would abound more and more in love. Love for God. And love for neighbor. That we wouldn't just be so concerned with adding to the religious regimen we have every week. And putting more things on the calendar. Hoping that we can do more love for God just by adding and adding and adding more routines and more exercises and more externals. But rather a deep, real, genuine, flowing from the heart love. That that would abound in us. And that that love for God would become so overflowing that it turns directly into love of neighbor. I've been praying that 
love would be the decisive factor in our lives. That love would be the decisive factor in how you talk. That it would be the decisive factor in how you spend your time and how you live and where you live and where you work and what kind of friends you have and how you're spending your money and how you're raising your kids would all be dictated by this great compelling desire that you have to love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength and then to love people that God has put around you, the neighbors, the co-workers, the family, and the friends. You shall love your neighbors yourself. Tied to the greatest commandment of loving God, as we've talked about before, you cannot separate the two. If you genuinely love God, you're going to love people. You're going to love your neighbor. If you genuinely love God, that it's going to flow out of your life and it's going to spill onto the people that God has put around you. But I thought it would be really good to spend time reflecting on that rather than just assuming that. And spending a little time digging into the actual statement of Jesus himself when he talks about loving your neighbor and then exploring what that looks like in the life of a church and it's got me really excited because the more we, I think about this and have studied it out, I go, oh, Lord, if you would to create this kind of love in our church, the, impo- the, the possibilities are endless. To think of what God could do through us if we were loving him and loving people the way the Bible calls us to is so radical that it would turn heads. It would get the attention of our community. It would make an impact. It would leave a mark so I've been praying. I want to start by just noting, as we've, we've noted already, that this idea of loving your neighbor as yourself is the summary of all that God gave us in the Old Testament. If you remember that, that's what the scribe was asking, which is the most com- important commandment of them all. And he tells him, you've got to love God with all, all you've got, and then you've got to love your neighbor yourself. And this is really the summary of all that the Old Testament teaches that God's people should be like. Romans 13, verse 8, gives the same emphasis. Paul picks up on what Jesus taught and reemphasizes it in Romans 13, 8. Owe no one anything except love to each other. For the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, all these ones we already read in Exodus 20, the Ten Commandments. It says, and any other commandment, Paul writes, are summed up in this word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. You want to wrap up all the Ten Commandments, put them in a nice little package, and summarize them? Love your neighbor as you love yourself. Galatians chapter 5, verse 14. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love is the wind in the sails of every Christian driving them and motivating them to do what they do. It's the fuel in your engine that moves you. It is the decisive factor in the decisions you make about who you're spending time with, what you're doing with your life, what you're doing with your career. All of these questions are answered by what is the way that I love God and love people? We're not living for ourselves, right? To, to love means to be outwardly focused, not focused on the things I want, but what does God call me to in active love toward others? This is the ethic of the Christian life. This is the overarching morality of the Christian life is what do we do? We love people. How good are we at loving people, loving our neighbors? Every, every age, Christians have been marked by love. 
They started orphanages, they started hospitals, they started crisis pregnancy centers, they've started foster care programs, they've started homeless shelters and food pantries and all kinds of other humanitarian efforts. But listen, church, it's not a given that every church will live up to the calling to love that the Bible gives, it, gives us. It's not a given that it will just happen. Revelation 2 is in the Bible where Jesus is talking to the church at Ephesus. I've mentioned this, I think, a couple weeks ago. You remember what happened in Ephesus? Jesus commends them for so many things. He commends them for so many things, and yet he has a critique, and it's a devastating critique. Does anybody remember the critique that Jesus has for the church in Ephesus? You have left your first love. Wouldn't it be a travesty if Grace Rancho was so busy with ministry and programs and events that we lost our first love? You see, Christians have always in every age been marked by love, but it's not a given that we will be all that God has called us to be. And this morning, I want to call us to reflect, to meditate, to spend some time really wringing out a very simple phrase, love your neighbor as yourself. And I want us to hear with fresh ears God's call on your life to love your neighbor as yourself. That your love for neighbor would touch your schedule. It would touch your wallet. It would touch your calendar. It would get in your way. It would get in your life. It would get in your business. And it would change the way you live. This is my hope. That your love abounds more and more. So I'm going to start by asking three questions. The three questions will kind of form the outline for today's message. What is a neighbor? Why does it say love your neighbor? And then last, what does it mean to love your neighbor as yourself? start with the first question. What is a neighbor? What is a neighbor? Love your neighbor as yourself. The Jews of Jesus' day likely understood the word neighbor to be referring to other Jews. It was likely their understanding of these commands, that the Jews were my neighbors, they were the ones I lived with, I'm a Jew, they're a Jew, and we're going to be loving toward one another because that's what the Bible commanded. And when you read the Old Testament, you do see that much of the commands to love are related to what was happening in Israel as a theocracy, as God's nation, and they were command to have, commanded to have loving relationships within Israel, or within the context of Israel. But if you're paying, paying close attention, when you read through the law, you would also see that God's command to have neighborly love extended also to those who would not qualify as Israel. I'll give you an example in Leviticus 19, verses 33 and 34. Listen to this. When a stranger sojourns with you in your land, you shall do him no wrong. You shall treat the stranger who sojourns with you as the native among you, and listen, you shall love him as yourself. You treat the stranger like he's your neighbor. You love him as yourself, as if, it says, as if you, or for you were strangers in the land of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. See, God rescued you when you were a stranger in the land of Egypt, and now when you encounter strangers, even if they're not Israelites, even if they're not fellow Jews, what do you do? You love them as yourself. The Jews of Jesus' day, though, didn't always live that way. In fact, there are certain types of people they didn't like and they didn't treat uh, with love. 
in particular, there's one group of people they really didn't like. If you remember the story in Luke chapter 10, there's a group of people the Jews really didn't like. It was the Samaritans. And this is why Jesus needed to tell the story of the Good Samaritan to help them see, well, I've got to explain to you who's your neighbor. Because you're only thinking that these particular Jews that are just like you are the only ones you've got to love. Jesus tells the story of the Good Samaritan. How many of you remember that story? The guy's asking, well, who's my neighbor? Trying to almost find a loophole. Like, who's my neighbor? You know, I want to know who my neighbor is, you know, that way so I can love that person and really not care about anyone else. And so Jesus goes into the story of the Good Samaritan. Samaritans and Jews hated each other. He tells this story. There's a man from Jerusalem. He's walking down the road. He gets beat up by robbers. He gets left for dead. A priest comes walking on the road, and he sees the body there, and he goes, nah, I'm not doing anything about it. Passes by, leaves him be. A Levite then comes, same thing, sees the body there on the side of the road, passes by on the other side, doesn't help him, doesn't do anything. And then a Samaritan comes. And the Samaritan would have had nothing to do with Jews. Jews and Samaritans were not friendly with one another. But the Samaritan comes, sees the guy on the side of the road, has compassion, takes him into his arm, binds him up, takes care of him, pays for his care, makes sure the guy has everything he needs, and is functioning in a way with great compassion that reflects the compassion of God himself. And Jesus says, which one's the true neighbor? Well, it's the Samaritan. Even though these people have nothing to do with each other, it's the one who shows love. And Jesus is making it clear that the idea of neighbor is not this technical word with some narrow definition only defined as a certain group of people. Your your neighbors are the fellow human beings that God has put into your life who are in need. And that we are called to be neighborly toward them to be near them and help them. And when there's these needs that come up, when they're around us and present themselves in our lives, we are to function like neighbors to them. Whether it's a physical need, like the brutalized man on the side of the road, or a spiritual need, a person who's lost and dead in sin and needs the gospel, these people that God has put around you, these are neighbors. They're your neighbors. They could be kind. They could be cruel. They could be activists, they could be atheists, they could be Buddhists, they could be Christians, they could be anything, but they're neighbors. They're made in the image of God. They're created by the very God who created you, and they bear the same image that you have in your life, and you are called to love them. You are called to treat them with dignity. You are called to treat them with respect. Why are I here? You are to love them as you love yourself. That's what a neighbor is. It is the person, it is the people that God has put in your life, fellow human beings. He's put around you at your workplace, in your neighborhood, at the family reunion, who have need, who have need. That's what a neighbor is. Second question. Why does it say your neighbor? Uh, I actually think this is a very interesting thing to reflect on. You see it there in the text. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Something we don't really think twice about. Of course, it would say your neighbor. Well, Well, think about this. How easy is it for us to delude ourselves 
and convince ourselves that we love people in theory. We love people in general. We love people, uh, we have good feelings about them. But we don't actually love any real flesh and blood people. It's like the person who says, oh, I love humanity. It's just people I can't stand. It's like the actual people that I can't stand. I'm a really loving person. See, it's really easy for us to go, no, I love people in theory. I love a vague, amorphous, kind of nebulous idea that we call people. I have good feelings toward people in theory, in general, but no one specific ever feels your love or experiences your love. And so we convince ourselves that we're really loving because certain emotions spring up from time to time, but we don't actually love any flesh and blood person. You see, what this word does, the word your, localizes this command. You are called to love your neighbors. It doesn't say you are to love all people all the time everywhere, which we would say is true. We're supposed to love people because they're all made in the image of God. But this specific command is focusing on your neighbors. You are to love your neighbors. It does not say love his neighbors. It does not say love the king's neighbors, the president's neighbors, or their neighbors. You have neighbors, and you are to love those specific flesh and blood people. When I say your neighbors, people's names should come into your head. Because this is localizing the command. It is making it real, intangible. This is not just theory. This is not just vague. This is not just feelings of love that you ought to have. This is specific people that you ought to know, recognize, and define. You see, I can't love your neighbors the way you can. I can have good feelings about them, but I don't know their names. I don't know their needs. I don't know what's going on in their lives. I haven't heard their story. I'm not near them. I don't know how to help. And you can't do my neighbors. You don't know them. Same reasons. You have no idea who they are. You wouldn't know how to help them. They're not right there in front of you. But I have my neighbors and you have your neighbors. And what the scripture is telling you, love your neighbors. You love your neighbors. You have a specific obligation for your neighbors. And you have an obligation for your neighbors that I don't have an obligation for those neighbors the way you have an obligation for those neighbors. Catch that? There's a specific obligation you have for them, localized, real, tangible love that you have for those people that I don't have for those people. I have for my people, my neighbors. You see in this? See, God is sovereign, isn't he? Acts 17.26 says that God determined the boundaries of every person's dwelling place. In other words, God is sovereign over where you were born, when you were born, what family you were born into, what house you purchased, what street you live on, or what apartment you're in, what neighbors he put around you, what co-workers you see every day. It is all sovereignly and strategically on purpose. You are right there for such a time as this. And the Bible says, love those neighbors. Love them. You love your neighbors neighbors. It's no accident that you are where you are. It's on purpose. That there's a divine and sovereign hand that has guided your every step and your every decision to put you exactly where you are with the exact people around you so that he would demonstrate his love in your life and that you would overflow with his love toward them. You ought to love your neighbors. 
sometimes, I like what one pastor said. He, he said, when we feel that it's our job to witness to everybody, then we tend not to witness to anybody. Same thing's true for love. When we feel that we just got to love everyone, and there is a sense, you know, don't get me wrong, that you love everyone, but you cannot love everyone in exactly the same way. And there's a specific neighbor love that is tangible, not abstract, that is real flesh and blood, that is a love that acts, that you ought to have a strategic bullseye focus on your neighbors. Think of God's strategy in this. Isn't it brilliant? I love reflecting on, on this. See, so you have a neighborhood, right? You have coworkers, right? You have family and friends that you see every week. And if you were to write down all these neighbors, you, let's say you got out a list and you wrote down all their names. These, these neighbors that God has put into your life that you know and you have access to them and they know you and you have a relationship with them. If you were to write down all those people, let's say you wrote down 20 different names. And let's say I did the same and I went in my neighborhood and I got all the names of my neighbors and the people that I rub shoulders with every single day. And I got my list out and you got your list out. And we put them out and we compared what would happen? Would there be any overlapping names? Maybe. But by and large, it would be entirely different names. And in doing this, God has taken a whole bunch of salt, that's what we are, the salt of the world, and he scattered it out into all the community so that you can reach people that I can't. And you're in the classroom, teachers, and you're at the office, businessmen, and you're in places that I can't reach, and there you are called to love those neighbors, the people that I don't know, the people that I can't reach. An incredible strategy. I mean, if, we, if there's, let's say there's 200 people in this room, and let's say all of us wrote down 20 different names of our neighbors. You know how many people that is? I had to do the math. I actually wrote it down here. Okay, what's 20 times 200? What does that equal? You know how much, somebody? 4,000 math majors out there. 4,000 people. Yeah, Jim, fist pumping. 4,000 people being reached. Now, imagine we go, okay, though, we want to do a big evangelistic event. And on Friday night, we're going to get a cool band up here and a concert, and everyone's going to come, and, and, and 500 people show up, standing room only. And we'd go, wow, amazing event. But you know that pales in comparison to God's strategy, which reaches 4,000 people every day, rather than 500 people on one exclusive night. I'm not against those kinds of events, but I am for God's strategy of showing love is you love your neighbor. And when everyone's loving their neighbors, we are reaching so many people all of the time. It's an incredible strategy that God has given us. And that's why one of the most cited verses here we have at Grace Rancho is Ephesians chapter 4, verse 11, which says that the leaders of the church ought to equip the saints for the work of ministry. Our job is to help you go do the ministry to your neighbors. We want to help you have a vibrant ministry that reaches the people that God has put into your life. God has sovereignly and strategically put you exactly where he wants you with people around you that he wants you to be a light there, to be salt there. And when all of us are equipped to bring the truth and the love of God to those people, that is the best evangelistic strategy one could come up with because it's God's strategy. Love your neighbors.
your neighbors. I love uh, Rosaria Butterfield's book. I've been in the last week thinking about these things. She wrote a book called The Gospel Comes with a House Key. Great title. And she's reminding us that we're not called to love the neighbors who are lovable. It doesn't say love nice neighbors. It doesn't say love safe neighbors. It doesn't say love open neighbors or love the friendly neighbors. It says love your neighbors, and your neighbors are going to be messy. And she tells the story of, and some of you guys will think this is funny. I'm not making this up. Hank, the story of Hank, who moves in next door to the Butterfield family. And Hank moves in, and he plays loud music, and he receives phone calls that get him so upset, he's screaming and obscenities on the, on the line, and the kids can hear. And he doesn't cut his grass, and it grows into a full-blown meadow that gets him in trouble with the city. And he's got a 100-pound pit bull named Tank that he lets run the streets with no collar. How many of you would like Hank to move into your street? It says when Hank moved in, Hank and Tank moved in, Rosaria brought her family over to Hank's house and rung the doorbell and introduced themselves and brought some cookies and, and wanted to just say, here's who we are and here's, we're, we're welcome to the neighborhood. It's not the neighbor they asked for or hoped for, but it's the neighbor they got. In response, Hank quickly dismantled his doorbell so that no one would ever disturb him again. And so they began praying for Hank. They just began praying. And every once in a while, they just try to check in and see how he's doing. And he was very much to himself. And then one day, Tank ran away. And Hank couldn't find Tank. And so the Butterfield family just jumped in and said, we're going to be a good neighbor. We're going to help. We're going to help Hank. And so they started praying that, that the dog would be found. And they started printing out pictures of the dog, lost dog, and posting it around in the neighborhood. They even helped rally the other neighbors and say, hey, we've got to find Tank. We got to find Tank. And sure enough, after a few days, Tank was found, and Hank was so moved that he began to open up a little bit to the family. They began sharing meals, and Hank talked about something that he didn't really talk about with anyone that he struggled with severe depression, that he struggled with severe anxiety, that he had a desperate fear of being in groups of people, and talking about himself was something he hated to do. He was a man starved for real love, and here was a family that actually began to love him. He didn't really go anywhere for a while. Sometime later, Hank went to prison. He and his girlfriend were cooking meth in the basement. But the Butterfield family stayed in contact with him and began writing letters to him and even visiting him in his prison. And they began praying for him even all the more fervently for Hank's salvation. And in prison, Hank repented of his sin, embraced the gospel, and became their brother in Christ. You see, it's not about loving nice neighbors. It's not about loving easy neighbors. It's not about picking the ones you get along with and loving them. Love your neighbors. And there are messy ones that don't want your love. There are neighbors that want to shut you out and you love them anyway. They want to push you away and you move like Jesus did into a world that was hostile out of love, a supernatural, God-given love of the love that casts out fear and moves toward them. I want to ask you, I know you love 
people in general, but do you love your neighbors? Or are there some people you're just not going to love? You're going to withhold. What about actual flesh and blood people, your neighbors? Our third question. What does it mean to love your neighbor as yourself? As yourself. We start by telling what it does not mean. Some people who have so imbibed society's teachings about self-esteem and self-love have scoured the Bible looking for any shred of evidence that might support the idea that we ought to love ourselves. And this is what they come up with. There's really no other place in the Bible that would dare suggest that we ought to love ourselves. In fact, that's an idea that has only been uh, prevalent in recent times. It has never been a virtue to love yourself until modern days. And so people look at this and they go, well, if you're going to love your neighbor as you love yourself, I guess you've got to start by loving yourself. You've got to start with self-love, and self-love is the foundation upon which you can build neighbor love. That's, that's the argument. And let me just tell you, this is not at all what Jesus meant. This is what Jesus meant. He is assuming that you already love yourself. That's what he's getting at. People already love themselves. They don't need to be taught to love themselves. They already do. From the moment you were born, you loved yourself. And all throughout your life, you have loved yourself. Even when Paul is exhorting husbands to love their wives, he does so on the basis of loving her as you love your own flesh. You've always loved yourself. That's part of the problem. It's the last thing you want to do is to tell a struggling Christian to stare in the mirror and learn to love what he sees there. You don't want that. That's, self-love is not what we're commanded to do. What this is saying is we need the love of God and the love of neighbor to displace love of self, displace obsession with self. We don't need to be obsessed with self. We need to forget about self. Get self out of the way and start loving God and neighbor. Break the mirror. It's not about us. We don't need to sit there and reflect on all the great things about ourselves. We need to have a biblical esteem of ourselves, which means we, on one hand, understand the great depravity of our sin, and on the other hand, understand the great immensity of the grace of God. We understand that God has made us, and God has said that by the grace of God we are what we are, and we forget about ourselves lost in the greatness of our love for God and our love of neighbor. It's not about self-love. That's not what this is about. What this means is that we ought to displace love of self. We ought to love others so much more than ourselves. We already love ourselves. Let's love neighbor that way. We want for our neighbors the same treatment we would want for ourselves if we were in their place. That's what he's getting at. You see, your neighborhood should be a better neighborhood because you're in that neighborhood. Your apartment complex should be a better apartment complex because you are in that apartment complex and you're salt and you're light. That the neighborhoods where Christians are should be the neighborhoods that are better and more humane and more life-giving and more welcoming I want to give you a few practical ways to think about how this might look. How do we do this? How do we love our neighbors as ourselves? Let's start with this. 
I want you to jot these down. Maybe this can be a part of discussion later on and something to reflect on throughout the week. Number one, this is the most basic. I felt like I needed to start here. Have concern for them. It's so easy to just not care. Excuse me? Just turn off your heart. Just not care. You're too busy. You're the Levite that's got to get to go make some sacrifices. The guy on the road is just going to take too much time. You just got to go. So the very beginning is just, just care. Be concerned. Have vested interest. Demonstrate concern by getting to know some of your neighbors. Learn their names. Learn their families. Know what they're like. Know what they're doing. Demonstrate care and concern by learning their names and knowing something about them. Secondly, Pray for them. I hope you're praying for your neighbors. Matthew 5, 43 to 48, Jesus says, You have heard that it was said, You shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. If you are to love enemies and pray for those who persecute you, you should also love your neighbors and pray for your neighbors so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. Part of the way we imitate God and act as his sons and act as his daughters is we pray for those whom God has put around us even if they are our enemies. I hope you're praying for your neighbors. I don't want to sound too harsh, but I want you to hear this. If you're not praying for your neighbors, if you're not praying specifically for your unbelieving neighbors, I think you're failing at one of the most basic, fundamental aspects of following Jesus. Because Jesus came on a mission to seek and save the lost. And if we say we're following him, and yet our prayer life is nothing for our neighbors, in what sense can we say that we're following the one who came to seek and save the lost ones? How could we say we're following him? We don't even pray for them. I mean, this is a basic, fundamental way that we live as Christians in this world is that we care about the lost. We love them. And so we pray for them. Moses pleaded with God to spare the lives of the Israelites who complained against him. Jesus prayed to his father asking for the forgiveness of those who killed him. Stephen was martyred praying for the souls of those who murdered him. Paul agonized in prayer for the churches and those who were at one point far from God that they might be redeemed and brought into the church every one of us who is serious about following Jesus as his disciple must pray for neighbors. How could we say we love them if we don't pray for them? We think we could save them on our own without the power of God? And so we don't pray? That'd be insane. We can't do that. We all have to pray. We have to be prayer warriors for our neighbors. This is something so basic to the mission we're on. I, I hope you feel like what Samuel felt in 1 Samuel 12, 23, when he said, Far be it from me that I should sin against the Lord by ceasing to pray for you. See, Samuel, Samuel had a conviction. If I stop praying for these people, 
I have sinned against the Lord. I hope you develop that same conviction. That you will say, it is sin for me. It is wrong of me to stop praying for the people that God has sovereignly and strategically put around me. We have to be so off mission. Have no concern that we don't even pray for our neighbors. If God answered all the prayers you prayed last week, would any of your neighbors be saved? The answer is no. I want to encourage you to change what you're praying for. Start praying for your neighbors. But more than just praying, here's a third way that we must love our neighbors. And I want you to turn to the book of Titus to see this. The third thing here is to do good to your neighbor. Do good for your neighbor. Turn to Titus. If you read Titus, a few months back I read through Titus 30 times in a month just to let it fill my mind and soul. And one of the things that I saw was there's a theme that runs throughout the entire book and it's the theme of good works. Good works. If you were to underline or or mark every time you see the phrase good works in Titus, you'd notice it comes up quite a lot. In chapter 1, verse 16, false teachers are unfit for good works. In chapter 2, verse 7, young men should show themselves to be a model of good works. In chapter 2, verses 11 to 14, I want you to look at this. It says, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us. So grace doesn't just get you off the hook of going to hell. Grace trains you, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness, listen to this, and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. You know, you are redeemed that you might be zealous for good works. That you ought to think sometimes, what's the next good work I need to be doing? We are to be a people who are zealous for good works. Then you look at chapter 3, verse 1. It says we should be ready for every good work. Chapter 3, verse 8. This saying is trustworthy, and I want you to insist on these things, so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to what? Good works. Be devoted to good works. Chapter 3, verse 14. And let our people learn to devote themselves to good works, so as to help in cases of urgent need and not be unfruitful. You're redeemed for good works. You ought to be zealous for good works. You've got to be devoted to good works. You've got to be a neighbor who wants to do good for those around you. You ought to be actively considering what good works I can do to these people God has sovereignly and strategically put around me. They are my obligation in a way that they are not yours. And I've got to be able to go and be active to do good to them. This is very practical. What does this mean? This will touch your wallet. This will touch your calendar. This will touch your schedule. This will definitely cost you time. This is something you've got to think about. This is something you've got to plan. What can you do to be a one who is zealous for good works to those that God has put around you? Could you bring them a meal? Could you cut the grass? Could you lend them a tool? Can you listen to them and ask them questions? Can you care about what's going on in their home? Can you babysit? Can you give them a ride? What can you do? Be active. Zealous devoted for good works. 
Number four, another way to love your neighbor is to open your home. We talk about this all the time here because we feel that it's a critical way that we as Christians are distinct in this world, that we are the people who have open hearts and open homes, that we invite you in. It's one of the elder qualifications in 1 Timothy chapter 3 that elders must be hospitable. Why must an elder be hospitable? Because he's setting an example for the whole church, that the church ought to be a place where hospitality, welcoming people into your life and into your home is normal the church ought to be like. Romans 15, verse 7, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you. Chapter 15, verse 13 of Romans, contribute to the needs of the saints and seek actively to show hospitality. 1 Peter, chapter 4, verse 8, above all, keep loving one another earnestly and, since love covers a multitude of sins, show hospitality to one another without grumbling. Open your home. Let your neighbors in. I love... uh, I love Luke 14. It's so counterculture. It's so the opposite of the way we Americans often live. Jesus is teaching. He goes, when you throw a feast, you're having a bunch of people over, and you're going to make them a bunch of food, and you start thinking about who you're going to invite. Jesus says, when you're throwing that feast, here's who the kind of people I want you to invite. Poor, crippled, the lame, the blind. His point is pick people who cannot pay you back. We love I'll scratch your back, you scratch mine fellowship. I will invest in the people who I can get something in return from. I will care about them. I'll invite them in. Jesus says, no, Your love should be like mine. God's love came to those who didn't deserve it. God's love came to those who wanted him away. God's love invited people like us, poor, crippled, lame, blind sinners. And you ought to do the same, Jesus says. Inviting these kind of people into your home. How's that sound to you? We Americans love our homes. It's our private fortress, our kingdom. We like to go there and spend our time in privacy. I work all day. I go home. That's the place I rest. I thank God that my house is a place I can rest. There's no guilt and shame in that. There's no guilt and shame in using your home to recover and recuperate. But I also know that God has said that everything that you've been blessed with is ought to be used as a way to bless others. All throughout Scripture, you encounter anyone that's ever been blessed. Are they only blessed so that they might be a cul-de-sac where the blessing stops? You never see that. It's always that people are blessed that they might be a blessing. You are given that you might give. God is generous with you so that God's generosity flows in you, through you, to others. It never stops with you. Every blessing you've ever received is to be an on-ramp for more ministry. You have a home. Why do you think God gave it to you? It's for His glory for his purposes. You're blessed to bless. I love what Dustin Willis and Brandon Clements wrote in their book called The Simplest Way to Change the World. And in it they write, the secret weapon for gospel advancement is hospitality. And you can practice it whether you live in a house or an apartment or a dorm room or a high-rise It takes only your willingness to open your home and life 
to others. You are called to love your neighbors. Have they ever shared a meal with you? Have they ever been in your house? Have you ever opened your heart and your home to them? Could you host a neighborhood meal? Could you host an Easter egg hunt? I remember reading about one church member who used to take his barbecue and go out in the front yard and start putting dogs and burgers on, and he'd send a text out to all his neighbors and say, hey, it's on the grill. If you want to swing by, feel free, no pressure. And then he'd invite some people from his church, some families from his church, and they'd hang out, and the whole community would kind of come out, and there he had mixed up the believers from his church with the unbelievers from his neighborhood, and there were connections for the purpose of ministry and love and community. It was all happening right there. I mean, how do we show hospitality? You've got to think about that in your own context, in your own life, in your own situation. How can we be hospitable? Church has always been hospitable, and here's the last way you love your neighbor. Number five, perhaps the most important of them all, is you share the gospel with them. We need to be evangelistic, church. Spurgeon said, a Christian without a missionary heart is an anomaly. If you love your neighbors, you eventually have to tell them the truth, right? You can care for their physical bodies, but if their souls never get fed the truth of the gospel, it doesn't matter how much their bodies were cared for in this world if they don't have salvation from sin. It's amazing that in Acts chapter 8, when Saul is chasing down and killing Christians, it says that the Christians scattered. The Christians all scattered. If you're reading that for the first time, you're like, oh no, the church is going to be so poor and empty and no one's going to be there. How is the church going to survive? But you know what it says? That as the Christians scattered, they went around preaching the word. (laughs) That it wasn't this one big, powerful, charismatic figure who spread the gospel in the early church. It was all these ordinary Christians who just went about in their neighborhoods preaching the word. That's how it spread. One noted church historian says the chief agents in the expansion of Christianity appear not to have been those who made it a profession or a major part of their occupation, but it was men and women who earned their livelihood in some purely secular manner and spoke, out of, their, spoke of their faith to those whom they met in this natural fashion. In their workplaces, in their new homes, in their new neighborhoods, they loved their neighbors and so they told them the truth. They told him the gospel. They said, God is holy. He created you for him. But you have sinned. You have fallen short of all God's requirement. That God will be righteous and good to punish you for your sin. But God is a God of mercy and love. And he sent his own son, Jesus Christ, who lived a perfect life and offered himself to die on that cross. And on the third day, he rose from the dead. And he's alive right now. And anyone, even you, neighbor, who repents and turns and trusts in Jesus will be saved. And as that message goes, people hear the truth. And often we don't get to see how they respond to it. But how else will people be saved? I mean, every one of us are here because at some point, someone was bold enough enough to tell us the gospel. Would you be bold enough to tell someone the gospel because you love them? This week I, I came across a story about a man who is driving on an interstate highway outside of LA late one night and there was this big earthquake and it felt it in the car and so he pulled off to the side of the road late that night. It was dark. He waited a little bit just to, to make sure his car was okay and jumped back in and he was about to pull out and make a turn and get going again 
when he realized something looked strange up ahead of him, the bridge that he was about to cross had fallen. The entire thing was down, and so he stopped, shocked a little bit, pulled over to the side of the road, and wasn't quite sure what to do, when suddenly another car starts coming full speed, didn't know anything had happened. And the man goes, oh, this is is the problem. He starts waving on the side of the road, trying to get their attention. Hey, there's no bridge, there's no bridge. He's screaming at the top of his lungs. The car plunges full speed off the edge into the water below. Four more cars are coming up. He's doing the same thing. He's shouting, he's jumping, he's screaming at the top of the lungs. They don't know what's going on on the side of the highway in L.A. in the middle of the night. They just keep going, plunge off the bridge to their deaths. And that's when he saw a bus coming full speed ahead, unaware of what was before him. And he decided in that moment, I can't let this bus go down. Uh, If this bus is going down, I'm going with it. He ran in the middle of the street and he was jumping, he was screaming, he was doing everything he could, waving his arms, trying to get the attention of the bus. The bus saw him, began honking, flashing its lights, trying to get him to move when eventually the bus driver slammed the brakes, turned the bus, and that's when the bus driver realized that he had narrowly escaped death thanks to the person who was calling him to stop. The bus turned itself sideways so all the coming cars would see it, and many other were saved. If that were you, I don't think you would park your car, think about that bridge a little bit, jump back in, turn around, and go home, and leave everyone else to perish. Yet how much more precious is the gospel? And how much more threatening is the coming judgment? And isn't it amazing that we, church, we have the good news that will save people from an eternity of judgment? How urgent should we be, church? How aggressive should we be, church, with getting this message out? How could we say that we have this information that will save eternal souls and not do anything like a person who knows that the bridge has fallen and yet will not tell anyone. It's a travesty that we are sometimes so ashamed of the gospel, isn't it? That we're afraid to tell people the truth. Isn't it worth it to be a little awkward for a moment? Isn't it worth it to maybe have a bad reputation with someone for a little bit? Man, if it will save a soul, if God would use the gospel message to draw that person to himself, let's tell people the gospel. You see, it's good to do good to people. It's good to love your neighbor. It's good to be kind. It's good to do all that stuff. But listen, at some point, they got to hear it. They got to hear the message. Because it doesn't matter. No one has ever been saved by a good example. They need to hear the truth about how to be saved. And you, church, All Christians and all churches are called to be ambassadors of Christ and to be the ones who come with the good news and give it to those in need. Have you shared the gospel with anyone this week, this month, this year? We must share the gospel. The reality is that nine times out of ten, you don't see any fruit. I could even mention some of the, the 
testimonies I've heard in this very room of how people got saved where the person who shared the gospel with the person who's now a part of our church has no idea they actually repented and got saved. They shared the gospel and thought that was that, never saw the end of it. And yet years later, that little gospel seed blossomed into full-blown faith. See, we're not just supposed to share the gospel because it works or because it's supposed to be this thing that we feel is great high and seeing all the fruit of it. We do it because we love God. And we do it because we love people. We do it because we're commanded to do it. But most of the time, it happens in small, small ways. It doesn't have to be this huge thing. It has to be small faithfulness, doesn't it? It's like this. Uh, this passage struck me, and I want to share it with you. One author said, We've fallen into the conventional wisdom that a big mission demands big tactics. But we forgot that in the economy of God's kingdom, big does not beget big. It's precisely the opposite. The overwhelming message of Jesus' life and teaching is that small begets big. Consider God's plan to redeem creation. Big is achieved through his incarnation as an impoverished baby, small. Jesus feeds thousands on a hillside, big, with just a few fish and loaves, small. Christ seeks to make disciples of all nations, big, and he starts with a handful of fishermen, small. Even Goliath, big, is defeated by David with a few stones, small. The pattern is also repeated in Jesus' parable about the nature of his kingdom. He said the kingdom of heaven is like a grain of mustard seed that a man took and sowed in his field. It's the smallest of seeds. But when it is grown, it is larger than all the garden plants and becomes a tree so that all the birds of the air can come and make nests in its branches. All of this affirms, listen, the counterintuitive nature of God's kingdom. We've called it here incremental revival. Ordinary Christians like us taking steps of ordinary faithful obedience to love our neighbors to the point where we're willing to tell them the truth. And nine times out of ten, we never see any significant results. But God is in those things. And we end with this question. What small act of neighborly love will you commit to this week? We must love our neighbors as ourselves. Let's take action, church. Let's pray. To love this way, Lord, requires supernatural power, requires repentance, requires the Spirit at work in us, requires humility, requires genuine love, not manufactured and fake love. So we ask for help. Work in us what we cannot do for ourselves, for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.